Myrmidon, Myrmidon, are you a Myrmidon of the Good Shepherd? You are called to be Myrmidon. Look it up. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We just thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your Son, for your Holy Spirit, Father, for the work you're doing in the lives here tonight. And in my life, Father, I just thank you for your faithfulness and your never-ending love. I am so not worthy, and yet you find me as your son, and I'm just grateful for it, Lord. Lord, we pray for Roger Cochran's family and the family of believers in his church, Father, and that you comfort them. And Lord, he's rejoicing with you even now, Father, just sitting with you and just rejoicing. And we love you, Lord, for the work you did in his life and what a blessing it was to our family here at Pasadena. We pray for your blessing on them and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, John, is that just too far away from my mouth, I guess? Is that better for you? Yeah, sorry. Just doesn't fit my big ear. Uh, Okay, John chapter 10 tonight. 1 through 21, uh, the true good shepherd. It's been said that the Gospel of John is a selective, symbolic, eyewitness account of the person and ministry of Jesus, written so that you may believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. A little background, because I just like doing backgrounds when I do a study. John is the, uh, the apostle, is the author, the son of Zebedee, and I think her name is Salome, and younger brother of James. Uh, Jesus nicknamed John and his brother the sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. Uh, John was among the Galileans who followed John the Baptist until they were called to follow Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in Mark, uh, in uh, John 1.19-51. John was one of the twelve apostles. After Christ's ascension, John became one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, along with with James and Peter. He refers to himself in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved and may have been the only surviving apostle at the time of his writing. Not really sure, but that's what the guy was writing. In later years of John's life, he was banished to the island of Patmos near Greece, I believe, where he received the vision of the future of Jesus Christ, recorded for us in the book of Revelation. The date of the writing is about 85 to 90 A.D., probably from Ephesus, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and before his exile to Patmos. According to tradition, John wrote this gospel from Ephesus. And really, the reason why this book was written, this gospel of John, is that it presents the most powerful case in all of the Bible for the deity of the incarnate Son of God. God as flesh. God came down. God around you and I. John states his purpose directly in John in 20, chapter 20, verse 31. So you may believe. Uh, here it is. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Faith brings life in his name. Last week, um, chapter 9 ended on a smart or sarcastic remark, depending on how you uh, interpret it, by the religious leadership's uh, question to Jesus and asking, Are we blind also? Uh, Rafi used his little light to bring light to the false shepherds and witness the blind man and the witness of the blind man and subsequent backing down of his parents to public pressure. And, you know, he's getting berated by the leaders of the church. You know, I, I suppose it happens. We pick up here in chapter 10 is uh, Jesus' response, parable, and patience to open the to attempt to open the seven uh, hearts of the religious leaders. And these religious leaders, remember, they are basically the priests, the pastors of their day. 
Um, guys like Osteen, Swaggert, Hinn, Baker. Just men. Just men. Just men. But men who have power and influence, and that power and influence has blinded them as opposed to the blind man. They think they are doing their job, but they are so dull spiritually that the Lord of heaven and earth stands before them and still their hearts and minds will not receive. And they're dug in. Their position is there. They're just protecting what they got. In Matthew thirteen fifteen, it tells us, For the hearts of the people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts. And that's the difference. And turn, turn meaning to be converted so that I should heal them, Jesus said. All right, let's read our text for tonight. Uh, Verses 1 through 21. Most assuredly, I say, say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they, the religious leaders, everybody there, there standing, did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, and the she- and, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved and will go out, will go in and out and find pasture. That was verse 9. Very key. Verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 11. Put that in your heart. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, There was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that's pretty heavy because uh, opening the eyes of the blind is fairly significant because it's not recorded in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, it only points to the Messiah having that ability. Uh, a little bit more on the timeline here. Uh, the first chapter of John covers about 30 years. The second chapter to 6 covers the next three years of his ministry. The seventh chapter to verse 21 of what we're going to tonight, verse 22, is basically about 9 or 10 days. In fact, what we're speaking of tonight is basically one long day. It's the continuation of chapter 9. Um, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles is Jesus, as Jesus walking under the shadow of the cross. You know, it's coming. The Ched chapter, verse 22, is two months after Tabernacles in December, and Jesus is a little bit like three months away from the cross. The 11th chapter falls somewhere between three months 
to the last week of our Lord's life, which begins in chapter 12. And so what the point being is, is that tonight should serve as a, a point of focus for you that this is really micro. We're, we're talking about a day, maybe two, that was so significant that God wanted it recorded so you can read about it now. So what's happening here, I believe, as I read it, saying God is saying, hey, everybody pay attention. Pay attention because, and as he's, you know, being patient to these religious leaders, these Jewish men and to people, to the Jews all over, they had the scriptures, you know, they had the scriptures. They should, they, they're waiting for the Messiah. And, <laughs> you know, he's like one of those guys on the side of a football field with a big sign, you know what it says, you know what it says. Essentially, here's tonight in a nutshell. Jesus is the true shepherd because he enters by the door in verse 2. He enters the front door properly, not like a thief or a robber, somebody who's going to take you away from the gospel. The owner walks through the proper gate. Jesus is the shepherd, the owner of his sheep. And remember, the sheepfold had only one gate. There was two kinds of sheepfolds back in the day. There was the city gate, and then there was one, the temporary one they would set up when they were out in the fields. But the common denominator was there was only one gate. Only the rightful owner, and we're talking about the city gate here, when he shows up and the doorkeeper sees him, only the owner can go through the gate. Only the owner can get in. A thief and robber could not. Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep, in verse 15. He enters by the door. He's the true shepherd because of his credentials as the owner. And he is the good shepherd because he gives his life for you and me, that we may have eternal life. At the close of nine, the Pharisees supported their position in opposition to Jesus with the principle that they were the leadership. They were the pastors of the church. And Jesus, he was, um, he was an outsider. He had no credentials. He didn't go to college. He didn't have a degree. He's not like us. He's not trained, you know. And he was an intruder, and they thought of him as an imposter. And if anything, they, they just dug their feet in, in opposition to Jesus. In opposition to this, in a, opposition to this, Christ here describes who were the false shepherds and who were the true shepherds, leaving them to decide. The Pharisees, again, were just men. They were thick. They were protecting their place in the world, you know. They were thinking and functioning on the horizontal plane, missing the Messiah right in front of them. Well, they either missed the Messiah or they refused to see the Messiah and Jesus and his messianic credentials. And in truth, Jesus was operating under the power and authority of the Father to fulfill the messianic prophecies, which are many. And the Pharisees, they just blinked, they missed Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin, came from Nazareth. He descended from Judah, descended from Jesse, descended from David. He performed miracles, no broken bones. He was betrayed by a fan. I mean, come on, born of a virgin, performed miracles, and ultimately resurrection. They were the spiritual leaders of the day. They were supposed to know the scripture. They just... Either, like I said, they were protecting their power or they just missed it. They just needed to read Isaiah. I mean, he was born as a human in Isaiah 9. He was born in, as a, of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.20. He is from the house of Judah in Isaiah 37.31 and Matthew 1. He is from the root and the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11.10. And that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him and his place will rest in his glory. Uh, in Romans 15, it reiterates it and says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. Of course, speaking to Jesus coming for all. He was uh, born in Bethlehem. He was from Nazareth. His mission would include the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6 says, it's, Is it too small a thing for you to be 
my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles and bring you my salvation to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth, everybody. And note, often in biblical usage, the Gentiles are referred to as the nation. But um, his ministry would include miraculous healings. Isaiah twenty nine eighteen. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and the darkness of the eyes the bl- of the blind will see. We just read that in chapter 9. It's right there. I mean, it seems pretty plain to me, but we have the benefit of, of, the hind- of hindsight and, of course, the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 20 through 22, it says, when, when men came to Jesus and they said, John the Baptist sent us uh, to ask you, are you the one who has come or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he pli- replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. John the Baptist knew. He got it. He was despised and rejected by men in Isaiah. Rejected by the rulers in Psalm 18. It's very clear that Jesus had the proper credentials. If If these accusers, these guys, just would have studied Isaiah, they... They may have had an inkling of, of what Jesus was saying, but they refused. They refused to hear. And again, like it said in Matthew 13, their hearts are dull. You know, we have to guard against that. We need to keep in the word, keep it fresh. In verse 1, it speaks about thieves and robbers. You know, a thief steals by stealth under cover of darkness. A robber will use violence. During certain times of the year, shepherds would lead their flocks away from the village to greener pastures. During these times, the sheep slept in temporary sheepfolds made of brush. But when the sheep remained in town, however, all the shepherds in the community brought their sheep into the common sheepfold that um, had stone walls, maybe six or seven feet high, and theft from these communal sheepfolds was common. It was a two-man operation, basically. A thief would stand on the shoulder of his partner, climb in, grab uh, to the sheepfold, then, you know, with stealth, throw the sheep out, take a few animals, and then, you know, run away. That's how, that's how the thieves work. In the parable, we have evidence that a thief and a robber that comes to do mischief to the flock, he's, he's trying to damage the owner. You know, and he also doesn't enter by the door. He comes sideways, and he has no lawful cause for entry. And he, and he goes through a back door, you know, or breaks through a window. And, you know, the Bible warns us about false teachers repeatedly. In Matthew seven 15, we're not we're to beware of false teachers who produce bad fruit. We're to cut down the bad tree. In Matthew 24, 4, False teachers will deceive you, and they mix truth with flesh. And really, as Christians, we are to study the scriptures and show ourselves approved, like in Timothy 2.15. Be diligent and study. That way you can weed out the false teachers. And then juxtaposing Jesus, our true shepherd, he's the owner of the sheep. And the owner, when he shows up to the common sheepfold, you know, he shows up to the doorkeeper and Doorkeeper know who he is. Oh, you're the owner of a sheep. And, and he does it honorably. He, he's right. He's true. You know, and of course, his sheep know his voice. And napping, I've said that. <laughs> Later in verse 14, he says, he knows his sheep and they know his voice. The Bible teaches in Revelation 2.17 that our shepherd, Jesus Christ, will give us new names that fit us perfectly for all eternity. I love that because it's going to call you by your name. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written, which no one knows except 
who receives it. More in verse 3. The shepherds of their day never drove their sheep. In America, you know, we have pictures of cattle drives. I think of the, for me, I think of the John Wayne movie, The Cowboys, you know, um, and how John Wayne was the shepherd for those boys in that film, and they drove the cattle. Driving the livestock hard over the landscape. In our work-driven culture, we as Americans are way too caffeinated and fueled by sugar, always going, going, going. But the Middle Eastern shepherd, by contrast, led the sheep. Led the sheep. Jesus leads his sheep. Jesus leads us. The picture is that the true and good shepherd has the needs of the flock always in mind. He goes through the valley of the shadow first. Literally. The Bible teaches in Hebrews that Christ was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize for our, with our weaknesses. But in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin in Hebrews 4.15. There is nothing in this life that you will ever face that Jesus has not experienced. Jesus, our true shepherd, leads you and me. In verse 4 and 5, it, it says it knows his sheep and he knows his own and the sheep knows the voice and follow. I mean, you think of when your mom and dad called you when you were a kid or when you call your, your, your children or, heck, even your dog. They know your voice. You can be in a crowd of people, like at a dog park. I know I take Captain. He knows when I'm calling him when he chooses to listen to me. I got a little Jack Russell. They're kind of stubborn. But, you know, I, I think of my daughter Leslie, you know. We'll be in a crowd of people, and all i got to say is, P. And she'll look up. She knows it's me. That's, that's their, her nickname. Long story. <laughs> Interestingly enough, looking back at chapter 9, this is what exactly what the blind man who was healed did. He heard the master's voice. He subsequently followed. He obeyed, and he found life. He was healed. Because he heard the master's voice and he obeyed and followed. I've always enjoyed this picture of the blind man because thinking of Jesus spitting and putting mud on his hands going yippity yippity you and go down to the water and immediately, you know, and get, get healed. I mean, the guy didn't immediately get healed. He had to do all this. He had to be obedient to what Jesus was teaching him. Jesus could have just went, and there it is. But no, obedience is part of the factor here where we hear his voice. We must obey. We must follow. He had to go to the water to wash out the irritant that Jesus placed there to, so he can have you know, new life, so he can see. And only then could he see. And it's a beautiful picture because... How do we deal with the irritants in our life, the things that cause us to stumble? Do we wash ourselves spiritually in his word? Do we find life? Do we, do we really seek his way? Or are we on autopilot, just cruising, hoping one day the mud to leave? No, we need to go. We need to be cleaned. Proverbs 8, 3, uh, uh, 32 through uh, 35 teaches, now, therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. In 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I like the word depart. It's a great piece of verbiage. It's depart, retire, retreat, withdraw. It implies leaving a place. Depart is somewhat of a literary word for going away from a place. To depart on a journey. To retire emphasizes absenting oneself or getting out of, drawing back from a place. To retire from a position in battle. Retreat. Retreat implies a necessary withdrawal, especially at, at the result of adverse fortune in, in a war, in our case, a spiritual war. 
To withdraw suggests leaving some specific place or situation, usually for some definite reason. To part, to quit. It comes from the Latin disperte. I'm not saying it right, but it really means to divide. The original sense of the word of depart is separation, and where it applies for us is separation from the old ways. We are to be new. We are to be new in Christ. And the only way that happens is through the word of God. We can, you can do whatever you want, but it's it really that simple. The word, walk, fellowship, the basics. We need to have a necessary withdrawal from the old life. To quit is to just stop. Just stop. <laughs> Depart from iniquity. That is a simple truth. Uh, God will always help. He will not cast you out when we go to him sincerely. We as sheep need to go to the shepherd. Verse 6. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to him. Then Jesus said to, uh, said to them again, I am the door of the sheep. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. It's like the FarmersOnly.com commercial. Pharisees, they just don't get it. They were thick-skulled and prideful. However, the true good shepherd is full of grace and mercy. His mercy and grace is unending. He's still reaching out to these guys. He's saying, come on, guys, get it. I'm telling you, get it. And for all of us, the Lord is faithful and true to keep coming time and time again. You know, how many of you actually received Christ the first time you actually heard it? Not many. It was multiple times. I know in my life as a young man, um, after I had come to the Lord... Um, found out there was this person who had been praying for me for five years. Somebody I didn't really know all that well. I just knew kind of, sort of. But God put it on that person's heart to pray. What a blessing. What a blessing. The Lord is faithful and true to keep coming time and time again and dealing with you concerning those issues in our lives that need to be addressed for our benefit. A shepherd in biblical times carried a, a horn of oil, and this was used to keep away the bugs and the irritants and, and flies, and it would make the sheep's life so unbearable. And if you know anything about sheep, it doesn't take much to set them off. They, they, they're, they're not very easily uh, calm. They're, they have a mob mentality. They, they have a flea tendency, and they're, they, they tend to be afraid, and kind of sounds like us, right? <laughs> So much were the sheep sometimes irritated by, you know, a situation like this. Uh, they would get to a frenzy and, and hurt themselves and hurt the other sheep. And, and I've even read that they, you know, if they were near a cliff, they would run off a cliff because they couldn't, you know, they weren't comfortable. And the good shepherd, the shepherd of the flock, was prepared. He was prepared to meet the needs of the flock, to guide and to protect them, you know, in Psalm 23, we read of contented sheep, of a restored soul, to fear no evil, uh, that sheep that lie down in green pastures and near cool water. If you grew up on a farm with sheep, you know how tasking getting a flock of sheep to be content is. I grew up in the city. I saw sheep at the county fair. You know, they were somewhat soft dirty and they smelled funny but you know i grew up in east la there is a great book and i recommend all of you pick it up i know henry has it it's called a shepherd looks at psalm 23 many of you probably already have it if not you should pick it up because it really does give you uh, a really good perspective on the psalm because what keller does in his book is breaks down psalm 23 in terms that we can all understand using his first-hand working knowledge as a shepherd uh, to bring depth to the language used in the psalm. I know it helped 
tremendously for me tonight as I was working on this study because it it made it a lot more intimate for me. Um, it brings the shepherd's love for his sheep even more so. You know, again, I, I've never herded sheep. I don't know what that's like. But um, that book really does put it in the language for all of us to understand. Again, it's in the bookstore. It's an easy read. It's, you know, it's not very expensive. Verse 7, I am the door. Jesus, again, is using language that his audience will understand. They are around sheep constantly. The door of which he speaks is the sheepfold door. Um, and this one where he's speaking of, he's speaking of the sheepfold out in the field. Because out in the field, it was kind of like a makeshift sheepfold. They would use twigs or whatever they would to uh, create an encampment or an enclosure for the sheep. But the door was just an, a doorway and just an opening. But the shepherd would actually lie in the doorway. So Jesus saying, I am the door. He is saying, you got to go through me. I am the way. I am the door of the sheep. I am in charge of the flock. I am the shepherd on duty, the only way which man can enter in. I am the door. Not a door, but the door. And everyone else is a thief. Buddha, thief. Krishna, thief. Confucius, thief. Thief. How do we know Jesus is the door? By the resurrection, he gave his life. The stone was rolled away, and he was not there. He rose from the dead. We go to Buddha's place where he's resting. Well, he's still there. He's still resting. Or not. Only Jesus fulfilled his ministry by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again to verify and validate to substantiate his claim to be the door. You know, as we're reading this in four more chapters in John 14, Jesus will declare that no man will get to the Father except through me, Jesus. Acts 4.12, there's no other name. No other name. He is our peace. He is our cornerstone. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's just awesome. He has made both one. When he says that, he's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. And I'm sure that idea rocked those Jewish people's world. They were just like, what are you talking about Gentiles? You know? But he has reconciled us to the Father. We now have access to the Father in his household. If you have the Son, you have life, and you continue to believe. The test of our faith is continuance. The test of our faith is continuance in spite of circumstance or difficulty in life. We all have experienced difficulty or some sort of issue in our walk, but we are to continue in our faith in good and bad times. Verse 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Anyone, anyone, anyone can be saved. Whosoever will come. All can come. Jesus is making it very clear that salvation is open to all. Anyone, Greek, Jew, Gentile, Puerto Ricans, or where's Ralph? <laughs> Irish, Chinese, and yes, even the French. <laughs> Jesus is the door, our shepherd. And when they do come, whoever will come, the experience first they experience firsthand the love and the grace of the living God. Our good and true shepherd that makes us lie down in grief pastures. He comes in verse ten it says to give life more abundantly. Literally in the Greek abundantly means better than the greatest. I don't know how you can get better than the greatest, but it's better than the greatest. More than you can imagine. And, you know, for all of us as Christians who've experienced the transformation and the peace and then that new life brings, there is a joy, and joy is so deep. 
and there's true love because you actually finally learn how to love and what what agape really means and how to be selfless. And that love comes from God. And he fills you. He fills you. So we can pour it out on the world to other people. In Ephesians 3.20 it reads, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. According to the power that works in us. Christ in us. Not us, Christ in us. Psalm 65 verse 4 says, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. O your holy temple will have satisfaction, will know contentment, will be able to lie down in those pastures. Now, mind you, it's not to say that the life of a Christian is all just wonderful peaches and cream because there are trials and there are pitfalls and there are difficulties. But the good and true shepherd prepares the way and knows every step we will take. And he will not lead you down a road or stretch that his, that his sheep cannot handle. And if you stumble on our trap and are cast down, his rod and staff will comfort me. His rod is quite literally a club the only weapon that the shepherd had, and he would use this to ward off predators. Uh, his staff, that long stick with a hook, um, the shepherd uses that to pull sheet out from a rut or, you know, soft mud or whatever, and if it's cast down. Uh, I read, again, in that book by Keller, the, the sheep stays cast too long, and we're talking like three or four hours here, the sheep's going to die. It can't get up. It, once it falls down, for God knows what reason, they can't get up. They don't roll over very well, I guess. So his rod and his staff comforts me, at least for me, took it to a deeper level, understanding it on those terms, to pull me out of the muck and the mire. In Psalm 40, 10 and 11, it says he will lead the flock. He will carry them if need be. He will lead them with a firm hand. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. The essence of the gospel is not what Jesus will do for you. It's what he already did for you. He freely gave his life for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, in all totality, everything covered. Amen. <laughs> everything. <laughs> There's no exceptions. You're not that special. Everybody, all-encompassing, everything. He died once and for all. So one does not get saved merely just to have a better life. <laughs> we get saved by faith because Jesus died for our sins. One and all, amen. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So why is Jesus the good shepherd? He gave his life for his sheep in verse 11. In verse 15, it says, he lays down his life for his sheep. In verse 17, it says he lays down his life and takes it again, God incarnate. Verse 18, it says he lays down life voluntarily and takes it up again, the power of God. This is how that we can trust him and his word. He died for our sins and he rose again. Jesus is God. He and the Father are one. The good shepherd freely gave his life in the place of we, his people, as a rescue and a ransom for us all, that we may be delivered from death and receive eternal life. In Isaiah 53, it says, He laid down his life, and he carried our sins, our burdens for all. He freely died for us. And because he laid down his life, our response, his flock, should be to follow closely and walk in love. In Ephesians 5, 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma. In Titus chapter 2, it teaches how we are to live because of how the Good Shepherd has redeemed us. In 2.11, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us 
from every lawless deed and purifying for himself his own peculiar people. I like that translation better. Zealous for good works. That's a great section of verses. I, you should put it to your heart, burn it into your hearts to be constantly aware of our blessed hope from the Lord. We were called to him. We need to hear his voice and live the redeemed life for the world to see him. And as Rafi shared last week, we are to let our light shine to the world. In C.S. Lewis's 1955 novel, The Magician's Nephew, Lewis once Lewis wrote, One moment there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand points of light leaped out. Lewis was describing the moment of creation where the one deep voice, God, is speaking it into being. We were once in darkness. Now we step through the doorway into his marvelous light. And we are to shine our light to his glory in the service of our Lord and Savior. No matter how great or how small your service is, we are to serve Christ. And if you're here tonight and you haven't made that decision to step through the doorway into his sheepfold, no time like the present. You know, I, I love that picture of the doorway because it kind of it took me back to an old honeymoon song, as I called them, when I first became a Christian. This one was by Roby Duke, where it says, As I stepped through that door, there were time is no more. I shall see God. I shall see him and touch him's face. That's the beauty of it. I shall see him. That's the name of the song. Great song. Great song. He's our blessed hope to be redeemed and restored, to be received in his mercy, to be saved by his grace. Uh, Verse 12 and 13. Usually the shepherd was the owner of the sheep or the son of the owner. Sometimes uh, the owner would have to hire help. Thus the term hireling. Hirelings would have a tendency to run whenever there was any danger because they weren't committed. They were just getting a paycheck and they weren't getting paid enough to fight off one of the predators. I mean, um, reading what a common predator for sheep were, were, you know, bears, lions, you know, and kind of, you know, (laughs) and you got a stick and you got to fight them off. That hireling says, oh, no, okay, dude, they tend to run. Because he wasn't committed. They weren't his sheep. He, you know. In Ezekiel 34, 2 through 6, it says, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought them what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. They were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts in the fields when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and on every high hill, yes, my flock was scattered to the whole face of the earth. And that's just a picture of of a hireling who just doesn't care. They're not committed. They're they're just to... to destroy. Uh, that's why in Amos 3.12, if a flock was harmed under the hireling's care, the hireling would have to produce the ears or the legs of the lambs that were carried off as proof. He did everything he did to fend off the attack. There was no on-body, you know, like the cops are using now. There was no of those GoPro cameras in those days to provide a visual record. You need to show that you were fighting for that sheep. Our good shepherd tenaciously cares for his flock because he is not a hireling. The application for us is that we are to be Christ-like, our shepherd to fulfill whatever we are doing at home or at work, service here at church, or anything that we say or do. We'd give our best for his glory, not as a hireling, but as one of his own. Our service is to be wrapped in his love, and we can love because he first loved us. In verse 14 and 15, it speaks of 
knowing and how he knows us and the Father is known, knows is gnosko. God, God knows. God knows your every need. Oh, here's a... There was a man who went to the doctor <laughs> to get his hearing aid finally put into service. And after uh, getting it in, and after two weeks, he went back to the doctor for some adjustments and told the doctor how great it was to have these hearing aids. Uh, you know, they're so good, I can even hear conversations in the next room. The doctor replied, how wonderful for you and your family. Your family must be so happy you can hear well again. And the, end, and the elderly re- responds and says, oh, I, I haven't told them yet. <laughs> But I have rewritten my will several times in the last few weeks. (laughs) I'm really getting to know my family. (laughs) Well, that may be true with with us on our horizontal plane, with our relationships, but it does not happen with God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The good shepherd knows his sheep. I love this scripture, Psalm 139, 1 through 4 reads, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What makes him the good shepherd is that Jesus knows everything about your thoughts and all the dirt and muck in your life in your actions, and your willing disobediences. And he loves you anyway. He willingly gave his life for you anyway. He knows us perfectly and still lays his life down. And we are to spend our days knowing him more and more. There's an old Maranatha song that says, I want to know you, Lord, just more than I do. Just more than I do. And the Bible teaches in Corinthians, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just just as I am known. We will know as much as God knows us. Billy Graham was once asked about regrets in life by a student. And if there was anything he can do over in his life, what would it be? His answer? I would spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. This is Billy Graham. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on his truth, and not just for a sermon preparation but to apply its message to my life. That should be an example for our daily meditation that we grow closer to the Father, the Good Shepherd, our overseer, our blessed hope. Verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. He's speaking here of the Jews and the Gentiles. Simple. It's They're going to become one flock. Jesus is the good shepherd because he welcomes all. His arms are open wide to everybody who calls upon his name. I mean, we read in chapter 9 last week that the blind man was excommunicated by the false teachers. They told him, get out. <laughs> You're not welcome here. You, you <laughs> And Jesus on, took him in. He healed him. The scribes and Pharisees, those people who supposedly knew him and loved him his whole life, kicked him to the curb. Jesus took him in. You know, the Jews for a long time were taught that they were alone by chosen and that the Gentiles were just fuels for the, fuel for the fires of hell. In fact, a common prayer uh, for the Jewish back in the first century was, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's not the way the good shepherd works. In Revelation 22.7, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let those who thirst come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The Lord welcomes all. The Lord is inclusive. All are welcome. All can come. I mean, in today's language, some would say that Jesus was a liberal. <laughs> he was welcoming all, as just opposed to the scribes and Pharisee of his day. 
God so loved the world. Not some, not a few, not an elect. You know, the biggest problem with the Calvinistic teaching is that they limit God to some, to a few. That's just not biblical. It's just not. At least not how I read it. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Isaiah 56, 8 says, The Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Jesus is saying, Anyone and everyone are welcome to come through the door. And, you know, to the Jews in that day, it was a hard trip to swallow because of what they've been taught. You know, Peter in Acts chapter 10 you know, through a vision and a visit to the house of Cornelius, reaches the conclusion that Christ is the good shepherd and he shows no partiality and goes on to say how Christ sent the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. But even with that insight, Peter is rebuked by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 because he was eating in public with the Gentiles and the legalistic circumcised comes around and he jumps to the Jewish side of the cafeteria and in a panic of perception, you know, it stumbled Barnabas and Paul. Paul had to dress him down and remind him that it's not the law, but of grace through faith in Christ. Look, as spiritual and as holy as we can be, in an instant we are reminded that at our very best we are merely flesh. We need to rely on God's spirit. God is not swayed by the color of your skin or your ethnic background or wherever you came from or whatever sin you were involved in. It's a matter of your heart and your willingness to yield your life to the good shepherd. You know, when my kids were little, usually in moments of sheer parental bliss, I would tell them, you know, your attitude reveals your heart. And it was basically just like a soft reset on a computer. Just, oh yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to watch my attitude. I'm supposed to watch what I say. I'm supposed to, as Don would say, bring out a can of act. Uh, what's that? A can of act right, right? A can of act right. <laughs> I'll never forget that night. <laughs> that was funny. Our needs, our hearts need to have the attitude of willing submission to the good shepherd. Our attitude to the things of God needs to be realigned every morning recalibrated by his word daily to stay within the fold. We are sheep. We need to stay within the fold. Jesus wants everyone to be saved and that every single sheep you meet in this life is a potential sheep for God's flock. They all have to just come to the door, to the shepherd. And you're probably going to be the only reflection to the shepherd that they're going to see. Your co-workers, your classmates, your teachers, your neighbors, everyone. You know, I really don't think we fully comprehend just how big our God is and his desire to want everybody to have eternal life and to be with him in heaven. We are one body in Christ. There are many believers in this life. But, you know, there's no membership here at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. You know, there's many churches. I mean, the churches that dot Washington Boulevard, I drive it all the time in Pasadena. If they're a solid Bible-based, believing, teaching church, they are part of the body. You know, to be parochial or uh, allow sectarianism to come in, especially with non-essential issues, things that are cultural and not necessarily doctrinal, or that are not doctrinal, like women wearing makeup, dancing, or the value of the three-point line in basketball, or the designated hitter in baseball. The point is that God's kingdom is huge, and just because a fellow believer does not identically believe as you do does not exclude them from the kingdom. You know, there's an old story about when um, Peter is uh, walking, one of the brothers from Calvary Chapel who passed away, uh, actually from a from a Baptist church passed away and he notices those one big room over here and all these people worshiping. It was really awesome in there. And he goes, hey, what's that in there? Goes, oh, oh, that's the Calvary Chapel room. We, we leave them alone. They think they're the only ones here. 
The point being is that it's not that way. We are to love all. We are to be welcoming to all. You know, God will sort it out. If God can make one flock between Jew and Gentile, then Christians can certainly break through the walls between their fellow Christians. We need to love. I mean, Xavier says it all the time, even from the pulpit downstairs, pastor is always, we're not the only good church, there are others. And if God is calling you there and you can be used and they are straight Bible-believing and teaching church, it's all good. Verse 17 through 21, the good shepherd is good because he gave his life for you. Referring back to the miracle of chapter 9, Jesus is foreshadowing not only his death, but his resurrection. The resurrection verifying his claim to being God, not only his claim to being God, but validating and giving credibility to all of his promises. The fact that Jesus died for our sins is our assurance that we as abiding believers are going to make it there. Our blessed assurances. The Bible promises that, lo, I am with you always in Matthew 28. Jesus promised he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came. His word is true. The Lord today is pleading our case before the Father. So when the accuser of the brethren comes to destroy, Jesus can say, Nope, this one's with me. He's covered by my blood. He dies for you and me. That makes him the good shepherd. We are covered by his blood. He knows me intimately and wants a relationship with me anyway. I mean, think about it. In our reality, how many people in this life really, if they really, really, really knew you, would want to hang out with you? If they knew the deepest and darkest parts of your heart. But God does. Jesus does. He loves you. His heart is to reach the world. He wants to use you to reach the world. He, we are his sheep, and we need our good shepherd. Again, think of the cast sheep. falls on the soft ground. They're not good at getting up. They're dumb animals. If a wolf attacks, he will more often than not just stand there and wait to die helpless. We need our good shepherd. He came to willingly lay down his life for those who hear his voice and be saved. His death was... Not a byproduct of happenstance or an occupational hazard of being the son of God. No. <laughs> In verse 11, 7, 15, 17, and 28, he states that he lays down his life for the sheep. I know I'm being redundant, but that's the point here. That's what makes him good. He gives his life for us. That's how we know it's true. There was a surgeon in... Um, Back east, northeast, and I think it was 1925. Could be 1921. I'm just I'm going off memory. But he was the first to use and endorse local anesthesia. He believed it could work, and his colleagues agreed. Yeah, it sounds sound. That's sound reasoning. But none dared to be the first. He needed a volunteer. This doctor needed a volunteer, and he found one. Evans Keith performed the appendectomy on himself. The doctor became the patient so that the patient may trust their doctors. Somebody had to do it. Our good shepherd did something infinitely more remarkable than that. He willingly gave his life that we might find life eternal and became our sacrifice. He has met and will continue to meet our every need. And I can expect this not because I'm spotless, but because Jesus is the perfect and spotless sacrifice. I can trust he will anoint my head with oil to ward off the bugs and the irritants and stuff. And now... His rod and staff will ward off the predators and comfort me. He will lead me through the valley of the shadows. I will lay in green pastures by still waters because my faith and confidence in my Lord, my Savior, my good and true shepherd. It's not what I've done. It's who he is. He has prepared the way.
not because I go to church or I read 17 chapters of the Bible every day or how much money I give. It's none of that. I mean, those are all fine things. And yes, we are to take up our cross every day. But his sacrifice is all that is required. It's based upon who he is and the work of the cross. We are saved by grace. The good shepherd became a lamb so that we sheep might know the true and good shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love, for your never-ending grace and mercy on our lives. We pray to you, God, that these words would just penetrate our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would guide our every step, that we can be useful to your kingdom, useful to others, and that we may love with a pure spirit and a pure heart, and that those who we come in contact, Lord, we just point to you. We thank you for all you do for us. We pray that you go, go before us this evening and just get us all home safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.